continue our journey today through the book of Romans. And if there was going to be a theme verse on the book of Romans, it would be Romans 1 and verse 16. I'm going to put it on the screen here. If I can get this thing back up and, and running. Many of you know it. I know it. But I want it on the screen. Here it comes. Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. If there was a theme verse for the book of Romans, I think this is it. The message is we are justified by faith through the power of this gospel, not by works. And this is for everyone, for the Jew, for the Gentile, for everyone who believes. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm beginning with this verse today. And one other verse is kind of a banner over today's dense and theological paragraphs in the second half of Romans 5. And I'm using Romans 1.16 as a banner over this verse because when Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel in 116, he says that because there are tendencies to be ashamed of the gospel. There were tendencies to be ashamed of the gospel in the first century. There are tendencies to be ashamed of the gospel today. And some of those are very different, those tendencies to be ashamed. You might ask, well, what were people ashamed of the gospel for in the first century? Well, one of the things that people were ashamed of the gospel or of Jesus himself was the, the very essence of his ministry. A servant, a suffering servant who died by execution under the civil authorities of Rome. This isn't exactly the Messiah that people were anticipating. So they may be ashamed to just actually and rejected him and the gospel because of that. They were expecting a Messiah who was going to throw the oppression of Rome and, and all of these terrible things away and, and reign on the throne in Jerusalem and establish peace and justice. So some were ashamed for that reason, but some are ashamed for others. As we come to our text in just a few moments... I'm using this text as a banner over today's text because in today's text, there are a variety of truths that you and I might shy away from. We might have a tendency to be ashamed about. And I want to say that we don't need to be ashamed of the gospel or of these other truths and doctrines, some of which we're going to touch on in the latter half of, of Romans chapter 5, the second half. The same spirit or the same banner uh, over the sermon comes out of First Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and self-discipline. So in the year 2021, we have different temptations to be afraid or to be ashamed or to back away from certain truths of the Bible. And so what I'm aiming to do today is for those of you who are like, well, that's not where I am. Well, good. I just want to reinforce that. But some of us have probably been there where really is this true? Is this right? 
especially when we're out in the secular world, when we're in various places where we might feel like, is this really true? And I want to say these truths are and to reinforce us so that we are bold and confident and not ashamed, not only of the gospel, but of all truths of Scripture, particularly the truths we're going to look at. So with that, let's take a look at our text. Hopefully you have your Bibles open to Romans chapter 5. And we're going to begin here just taking a look at verses 12 and 14. As we turn to verse 12 of Romans 5, your devices are open to that, your Bibles are open to that. Let me also just remind you the difference between teaching and preaching. If I were just teaching Romans 5, we would be dealing with the first century world and the ancient text and just teaching it. But part of what we are to do when we preach the Word of God is think about our context and who we are and how we are to live out this text. How we are to respond to this passage. And how we respond in 2021 is going to be probably different than how someone responded in the first century. So that's the difference between teaching and preaching. And I'm my aim is to preach this passage today. With all of that, let's take a look just at the beginning of verse 12. So Paul begins, Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man. Well, let's just pause there for a moment. Uh, who is the one man we're talking about here in verse 12, church? Who is it? It's Adam. So notice we are told how sin entered the world. We're not talking about the whole universe here. World can sometimes mean that, the Greek word cosmos. But here it's referring to the earth. It's referring to humanity. How did sin get into us as human beings? We're told in verse 12, it entered through one man. That man is Adam. He's actually named down in verse 14 and in a variety of verses here at the end of Romans chapter 5. So sin has come through this one man. Now all through this unit, which we won't have time to do every verse here or every phrase of 12 through 21, or we'd be here too long. Uh, we're going we're gonna to look at a few of these verses, but all through these few paragraphs, what we have is a comparison and a contrast of Adam and then another man. Let's jump down and look at uh, verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam. Adam broke a command. Some of those who lived after him, they weren't given a command, but they still died because they sinned. But Adam, finishing in verse 14, was a pattern of the one to come. So this first paragraph introduces the the contrast and the comparisons that are going to come out in the next couple of paragraphs between this one man, Adam, and then verse 14, the one to come. And who is the one to come, church? It's Christ. So we have these, this contrast and comparison between Adam and between Christ. They have massive, massive impacts on the world. Adam and Christ. The first man. And the first one to come, as it were. Both of them establishing patterns and having massive, massive consequences or joys or blessing, blessings that follow their lives. So what is it in here that we might 
shy away from or that we might even be ashamed of or maybe ashamed is too strong a word. Maybe we're just kind of embarrassed and we don't want to maybe camp on the tr- on, on a variety of truths in these few paragraphs. If we're out in the secular world, if we're in the workplace, if we're we're in a conversation with people that are not believers, what might we want to shy away from here? And I want to suggest one of the first things that we want want to shy away from is that sin came through this one man, Adam, in the garden. It is something that is mocked and laughed at around, uh, around our culture and in our world. You probably have never heard of this guy. I had not heard of him. He formerly taught at UC Berkeley. He's a professor at Harvard now. He is not a believer. He's written this book, The Rise and Fall of Adam and Eve, The Story That Created Us. And I'm going to quote his book here because although he's a scholar and obviously at the very top of his field and and, and a, a very capable intellectual man, what he writes in this book, I think, would speak for many of our neighbors and friends, although they wouldn't write a book like this and so on, but they might have this kind of sentiment, which is in the book. He writes this, a talking snake, a tree that confers knowledge of good and evil, another tree that confers eternal life, supernatural guardians wielding flaming swords. This is fiction at its most fictional, a story that revels in the delights of make-believe. We see how he views this ancient text in Genesis 1 and 2. Again, I'm quoting him because Paul, long after Moses wrote the book of Genesis, Paul is telling us that sin entered the world through this one man. Back to our Harvard professor's book. He writes this, he says, millions of people including some of the subtlest and most brilliant minds that have ever existed, have accepted the Bible's narrative of Adam and Eve as the unvarnished truth. Now, this is interesting. I think what is in his mind here is he can look back at brilliant people like the Apostle Paul, at people like Augustine, and say, these are brilliant people who have accepted this narrative. But his perspective for those of us who live in 2021 is very different. And many of our neighbors and friends and colleagues and co-workers would have a shared perspective, a shared worldview with this guy, Stephen Greenblatt. So for us, he says this. He says, and notwithstanding, the massive evidence accumulated by geology, paleontology, anthropology, and evolutionary biology, untold numbers of our contemporaries continue to take the tale, Genesis 1 and 2, sin coming through one man. Our contemporaries continue to take the tale as a historically accurate account of the origins of the universe and to think of themselves as the literal descendants of the first humans in the garden. So I don't know where you're at, but I think that it is possible in certain settings that many of us might want to shy away from this truth that we read in Romans 5.12, that we read in Genesis 1 and 2. Paul 
understands Genesis 1 and 2 as historical narrative. Not only that, but it's where sin came into the world. And he contrasts Adam and Christ. They are both historical, narrative, true stories. So, what do we do with this? What do we, how do we respond and engage? How do we not become ashamed if you might have some sympathies to the teaching that you would find not just at Harvard, but at Sac State or UC Davis or any UC campus, virtually any university in the, in the United States, in any biology department, almost every professor would have a sentiment very much like that about this story and about origins. Well, let's flip over and look at what um, a believer who's also a scientist, Francis Collins, writes in his book. This is a person who sees the scripture as the word of God. He says, no serious biologist today doubts the theory of evolution to explain the marvelous complexity and diversity of life. This is, this is um, one of the, the greatest scientists of our day. I don't know if you've ever heard of him or not. He is a believer. He, uh, like uh, his Stephen Greenblatt that I just mentioned, uh, has a Ph.D. from Yale. Uh, Collins is in physical chemistry. He also has an M.D. Very few people on the planet have Ph.D.s and M.D.s. He also was in charge of the Human Genome Project. It's a pretty impressive resume, a $3 billion project that mapped DNA. Francis Collins was in charge of that. He's a believer in Christ. And he's saying the theory of uh, evolution is, 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 is not doubted. Now, he doesn't believe that evolution is what created the universe. He believes God created it. But he, Francis Collins, sees evolution and the theory of evolution, the modern neo-Darwinian theory of evolution, as a fact. He sees it as a fact. And that's why he wrote this book. Now, I don't have time today to go into everything that he's saying. My purpose today is how do you and I respond in a culture where Christians say no serious biologist doubts the theory of evolution, respond to Romans 5 verse 12. How do we respond to this? Let me quote one other person before we kind of answer, before I answer that. Uh, Tim Keller, who's a pastor, uh, he writes this about Romans 5, actually. He says, Paul most, defini most definitely wanted to teach us that Adam and Eve were real historical figures. I've already said that. When you refuse to take a biblical author literally, when he clearly wants you to do so, you have moved away from the traditional understanding of the biblical authority. And I want to amen this. And I want to say yes to this. We can't move away from what the scriptures clearly teach. What the scriptures clearly teach is that Adam and Eve were historical persons. Not only that, but sin came into the world through him. This was an actual event that happened that had universal consequences. So what I want to say is that the scriptures are not as clear about when this happened. Many of you here perhaps believe the earth is young. That's kind of where I trend as well. But Francis Collins, 
one of the top scientists alive in our world today, the, the, this guy who headed the Human Genome Project, says that the Earth is 14 billion years old. Now, I'm not going to be on a mission to try to convince Francis Collins how old the Earth is. I'm not qualified to do that. But if I sat down with him, I would, I would be able to say to him confidently how sin entered the world through one man, Adam. So all of this to say, I want us to have confidence in the word of God. And the word of God presents Adam and Eve as historical persons as, and as sin coming into the world through Adam. And these truths are important for us to hold on to, and they are compelling facts. They are not a liability. I want to say that the age of the earth is not in the same category as far as where we draw lines as the historicity of Adam and Eve and what we're reading here in Romans 5.12. So some of you may disagree with me on that, and that's okay. We can talk later. But I would say it is really clear in Genesis 1 and 2 who created the world. It wasn't some random mutation, so some, some spontaneous combustion. God spoke it into existence. And at some point, whether it was 10,000 years ago or a million years ago or 14 billion years ago, I'm not sure. Can you handle your pastor saying that? I'm not sure how long ago it was, but at some point there were historical persons, Adam and Eve, and this happened. And I want to say, even at the highest academic levels, that this can, can, this text, the end of Romans 5 and Genesis 1 and 2, can be a compelling thing to speak into other people's lives and not something that we need to shy away from or be embarrassed. I took a lot of time to say all that. Is that okay? All right. Talk to me afterwards if you, you, you disagree. So what am I saying? I'm saying we're finding five bold truths for life in 2021 out of this text. And the first one is that the historicity of Adam and Christ, I didn't even mention Christ, you know, the, the, there's no, uh, our, our atheistic friends like, uh, I, I don't know that he's an atheist, but the, our non-Christian friends like the friend from Harvard, this guy who, who wrote this book that I, that I quoted, uh, Stephen Greenwald, um, they do not doubt the existence of Christ. So we may get to a point in our uh, postmodern world where they will doubt him. They are not doubting his existence. They just doubt who he is. They disagree with us on who he is, but they doubt who Adam is. So Adam was a historical person, and sin entered the world through this one man, just as he was a pattern of the one to come, the pattern of Christ. So all of that out of verses 12 and 14. Let's come back up to verse 12 now. Okay, and finish it up. So, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men because all sin. Death came to all because all sin. Here's another truth that we, we might want to step away from, that we shouldn't step away from. That is that human death is a result of, of Adam's sin. 
that God had designed human beings to live forever and ever for eternity. And indeed, we will after the resurrection, after the coming. But death, human death, is a result of sin. Now, evolutionary biologists will say, no, death is part of the ecosystem and evolutionary biology and all that, but that is not what the text is saying. Through this one man, Adam, death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. All of us have sinned. John Stott writes this. He says, it is because we are not animals that Scripture regards human death as unnatural, an alien intrusion, the penalty for sin and not God's original intention for his human creation. Only if Adam disobeyed, God warned him, would he surely die. This is why you and I die. Because of Adam's sin and because of our own sin. Death is an interrupter to how God designed humanity. And we are different than the animals. We are different than trees because we are made in God's image. So we do not need to shy away from the historicity of Adam and Eve. We do not need to shy away from this reality that death, human death, is a result of sin of the historical Adam who disobeyed God. So that's my second of five bold truths for 2021 out of this, out of this second half of Romans 5. Human death is a result of sin, and it's not part of God's original creation. It is interesting, in our country, in 2021, how busy we are and how the busyness of our lives prevents us from thinking about our own death. I'm talking about everyone in our country, really, in general. We, we know that death is certain. We know that it's a certain reality. But we deny on one level, that it's there, that it's going to happen. Our lives are kind of go about as though we're, we're we, we don't even think about death. We don't see it. We don't process it. If you're not connecting with me, maybe this will help you. So what happens when someone gets a, a fatal diagnosis? Their, their mind shifts. Their heart shifts. I'm going to die. I have cancer. I've had this diagnosis. I, I, I'm going to die. I've been diagnosed with pa pancreatic cancer. And you often see a shift in that person's mind or heart. Like they weren't going to die before. Like all of a sudden, now I'm going to die. Well, yeah, we're all going to die. And the most important thing is that we are reconciled with the Creator who made us. But we somehow, through this spiritual darkness live in a place where we, we don't even think about this. Human death is a result of sin. It's not part of God's original creation. It is an interrupter. Yesterday ended up being a glorious day, but it was a reminder of what I'm talking about right now. I, I got a phone call. Someone uh, had a heart attack in the hospital for, for 10 days. What happened? They, they got discharged, they got better, and they got home, and now they're having an attack of the soul and the mind because they're facing death in a new way, with this new paradigm, with, with this new thinking. 
and that person had not been reconciled to God. So I end up on the phone, a technology of cell phones, so I, I'm on speakerphone, I'm talking with this person, she's an 80-year-old woman, and she's dealing with the reality of death for the first time. I tell her the story, the true historical story of Jesus and the gospel, and that she can face death with peace. And we talk, and, and it's an emotional time, and we're, we're going deep. And praise God, we prayed at the end, and she professed faith in Jesus at the end of our conversation. Why? Yes, amen. Why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this not because it's just such great news. It is glorious news. I went home and told my wife right away. I'm telling you this because the truth of the Scriptures are not things that we should be shying away from when we're around brilliant people who understand evolutionary biology on a way that I don't. The truths of the Scriptures are compelling and true. And we should not be ashamed, not only of the gospel, but of these other truths that the Bible teach. This woman has gone through 80 years of her life and through living all kinds of, doing all kinds of good things and all kinds of busyness, hadn't really thought about reconciling with the one who made her until she comes home from the hospital after a massive heart attack. Human death is a result of sin. It's not part of God's original creation. This might be something that we shy away from. No, this is something that we have to say and speak into people's lives. This is true for all of us that we need to be reconciled with the one who made us and the fear of death is a reminder to do that. Okay. Where am I? I've only gone through one verse. Say, pick it up, Mike. Help me out here. Say, pick it up. I'm being honest here. Say, pick it up. All right. All right, I got this. All right, let's uh, let's jump ahead to uh, to verse 18, okay? We've looked at 12. We've looked at 14. We see these comparison and contrast between Adam and Christ. And we jump down to verse 18. Consequently, the NIV says, or therefore, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, and their men means men, women, children, all humanity, just as a result of one trespass was condemnation for all humanity, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all humanity again, all men, all women, everyone. So let me just say something quick here before I get to the main point. So words have their meaning, only have meaning in context. So one of the words we have to ask the question of what all means, what, one of the words we have to ask is, it sounds kind of silly, but what does the word all mean, the second all, at the end of verse 18? When it says the result of one act of righteousness, Christ's death on the cross, was justification that brings life for all humanity. Who is the all humanity? Now, if you just looked at this verse, you might say the all humanity is everyone. And every human being will end up being saved in the end. Every human being will end up being reconciled to God. If you just looked at this verse, you could conclude that. But have you read the book of Romans? 
if you conclude that. I'm not going to quote the commentators who conclude that. Some commentators conclude that everyone will be justified in the end based on that word all. But guess what? If you read the book of Romans, you are justified by what? By faith. In what? In whatever you want? No, in the gospel, in Christ. So that second all, justification that brings life for all, is referring to all who believe the gospel, all who believe in Christ. Well, Mike, how do you know all means all that there, and it doesn't mean that? Is it a different Greek word? No, it doesn't really have anything to do with Greek. It just has to do with reading the Bible and seeing what it says. But that's not my main point there. My main point there, again, in this sermon, I'm talking about things that we might want to back away from. That we might, if we're in a certain setting, want to move from. And the thing that I think we might want to move away from here, that we might have the tendency to have that we shouldn't, is the reality that one trespass of one guy, whether it's 10,000, a million, or 10 million years ago, whenever it was, that his one trespass condemned me? That's what this is saying. Now, this probably isn't the verse you're going to pull out to share the gospel with your friend, right? But if you did, you might, might have some trouble here. Adam's trespass, the result of it, was the condemnation of all men and women. That's what this is teaching. That is something we might want to shy away from, that we should not shy away from. So let me take you to another verse. We have controversy this morning, and we're going to get into a little more of it here. So 1 Corinthians 11. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is is God. Why have I put this verse up here? I've put this verse up here because Adam is also a head. He is also an authority, a representative figure for all of humanity. The head of every man, every woman, everyone is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Let's start with that third one just very briefly, and then we'll come back to Romans. Well, let me actually take the second two. So the controversy here is is the second part, talking about things we might want to back away from. Is that a verse you're going to pull out, sharing the gospel with, with your friends? That the, that the head of a wife is her husband. It may be something that you are, are not excited to talk about in certain settings, right? Would this go over well in Berkeley in a sociology class? It wouldn't go over too well. What would we say if we were in that class? We would say this. We would say, the head of Christ is God the Father. It is a fallacy to say that Christ is somehow inferior to God the Father, that God the Son is inferior. He's not inferior. They are co-equal in deity. Father, Son, and Spirit. Co-equal. God. The three persons of the Godhead. And yet, God the Father, that's what God refers to in this, this last line, is the head, the authority of Christ. Christ prays to the Father. Christ submits to the Father. Christ does the Father's will. 
The Father doesn't do Christ's will. We don't see that. There is order even within the Godhead, but there is not inferiority. And so we have the same dynamic in a marriage relationship. Because a husband is the leader, it does not necessarily follow that the wife is inferior or put down. That is not what the scriptures teach, and that is assume what they teach. Now, I'm far away from where, where I was here. This was going to be an example, but we're moving into something else. This is an example of the problem of how Adam is also our head. The problem I, I, I should and want to be talking about here is the problem that how can this guy, if I could believe that Adam was a real human and he's responsible for sin coming into the world, how am I supposed to believe that I was somehow condemned for what he did? How do we deal with that? John Stott helps us. He says this, The concept of our having sinned in Adam is certainly foreign to the mindset of Western individualism. But are we to subordinate Scripture to our own cultural perspective? Africans and Asians who take for granted the collective solidarity of the extended family, tribe, nation, and race do not have the difficulty which Western people experience. So here we're getting into ourselves a little bit, and we're maybe learning this morning, assuming you are an American and have lived here your whole life, which I think is the case for most of us here. We are massively individualistic. And so the problem that we have with how can I be held accountable for what Adam did, that question more arises out of our American individualism than it does out of truth. We are fiercely independent. And as families even, we don't have the kind of response that, say, an Asian or an African family would have when a child does something terrible. It reflects on the whole family for them in, in a way that's, that's profound and deep because there is a solidarity. We're one. We're a family. And this is what the Scriptures teach about us as human beings with Adam being our head. So there is a sense that we sinned in Adam. He is our father. We all came from him. There is a sense, whether you want to call it genetic or spiritual or fatherly or whatever, there is a sense that we sinned in him way back then. And so the result of the one trespass was condemnation, verse 18, for all humanity. So also the result of the one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. So this is controversial, I know. But this is, I believe, true. Now, you may be thinking, is there somebody been left out of this whole, this whole unit of Scripture, the latter part of Romans 5, and it's Eve? Who sinned first? I mean, that's how kids often say who gets in trouble, right? Who's responsible? He did it first, right? She did it first. She made me do it. No. Adam is held responsible. Paul leaves her out of the picture here because he holds Adam responsible. He is our federal head, if you will. Adam, the head of the human race, credits sin to his descendants. Maybe an illustration might be when a, a president or when the president, FDR, uh, committed our country to war, World War II. Goes before Congress 
and the country rallies. And teenagers are lying about their age to, to go and fight and to enlist. And, and there's a sense in which we declared war. We are in this. We are going to respond to what happened at Pearl Harbor. There is a sense of solidarity. One person did it, a federal head. But we all did it. We're part of one another as Americans. We've kind of lost that solidarity as Americans, haven't we? But we cannot lose that kind of solidarity in Christ. I'm talking about the bad news here that Adam, the head of the human race, credits sin to his descendants. But the good news is that Christ, the head of the church, also credits righteousness to us by faith. So Christ, the head of the church, credits righteousness to believers. Charles Hodge puts it this way. He says, Paul has been engaged from the beginning of the epistle to the Romans in including one main idea, that the ground of the sinner's acceptance with God is not in himself. It's not in the good things that Mike has done. Whatever I have done that's good, that's not the ground of my acceptance, but it's the merit of Christ. That's the second part of verse 18. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way, look at yourself in Adam. Though you had done nothing, you and I weren't there, we didn't do anything, you were declared a sinner. Because of this solidarity, he's our federal head. Look at yourself in Christ and see that you have done nothing. You are declared to be righteous. That is the parallel. That's what Paul's trying to drive home in this second half of Romans chapter 5. So in verse 18, it's we see Adam. Look at verse 19 with me. It says, For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. Christ made us righteous. He satisfied God's wrath. There is a sense in which we became righteous when we believed. There is another sense in which we became righteous. Every person in the history of the world that would believe became righteous when Christ suffered on the cross in our place. Through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. So Christ, the head of the church, he credits righteousness to the believers. The old-fashioned word here would be impute. So I just put credits. We are sinners in Adam. We become righteous by faith in Christ. Let's finish up today looking at verses 20 and 21. You still tracking with me? We need to do like any exercises or anything? We're almost done. All right, 20 and 21. Let's look at these two verses and we'll finish up. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. Let me pause here after that sentence. Now, if you were a first century reader, this is what you would expect Paul to write if you were a first century Jew. The law was added so that holiness might increase. That's why we were given the law. Wow. Paul is saying the law was added so that the trespass might increase. We see that we can't keep the law as we are given the law. A big part of our identity as believers, as followers of Christ, is that we are lawbreakers. We somehow communicate to the world that we have it all together. You don't. Stay out there. We're here. No, we are all lawbreakers. The law was added. The law of Moses was added so that the trespass might increase. And we would see our desperate need for a substitute, a sin substitute, a Messiah. 
the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Verse 20, continuing. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Now again, first century Jewish reader, where sin increased, you expect now, judgment increases all the more. But going back to what Chris was talking about in confession, as you and I struggle, I know some of you here, myself included, have certain sins that we have not beat down. And we repent and we struggle and we fight and we find ourselves doing it over and over and over again. What is the heart of Christ? What is the message in Romans 5? Where sin increased, grace increases all the more. Just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is a fountain. This is a cascade. This is a massive river of grace coming our way. So, the last truth that we don't want to move away from in 2021 is that grace outpaces sin. Every person in, in the world, especially those intellectual elitists who laugh at Genesis and laugh at the teaching of Paul in Romans 5, well, they don't laugh at those guys. It was okay. They were smart back then for the knowledge they had. But now that we have the knowledge we have, this would be outrageous to believe this today. The person who thinks that they desperately need to hear from us, they desperately need to hear that grace outpaces sin. Their scientific solutions will not bring reconciliation to their souls as they get diagnosed and face death. We who understand grace have this great news to give, and we don't need to shy away from any of these truths. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures. In the year 2021, some of them are very difficult to process, particularly for those who have a serious biological mind. For those who, who struggle with some of these details, we thank you for those in the church who, who've worked hard at laboring and, and studying about biology and the age of the earth and these things. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to told, hold tightly to these truths and not to shy away from them. Lord, help us to not be embarrassed that there was a real historical Adam and Eve and sin and death came into the world because of Adam's sin, because of Eve's sin, because of all of our sin in Adam. And Lord, we are thankful that you loved us so much. You sent your son for us to be reconciled. We thank you for this good news. Help us to be bold with it this week and to live it out in Jesus' name. Amen.